we do not want to securitize and sort of turn into terrorists these much broader online communities that might be hateful, that might be extremists, but are not necessarily terroristic. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremists use to the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're looking at hybrid threats. When we're talking about hybrid threats in this context, we're really talking about a process of hybridization between violent extremism um, and other related phenomena, including disinformation, conspiracy movements, and weaponized hate, as well as state actor threats. That's Milo Comerford, Head of Policy and Research at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, ISD, a think tank which specializes in research and policy advice on hate, extremism, and disinformation. We're also joined by Dr. Bettina Rottweiler, a research fellow at University College London, where she specializes in researching risk and protective factors for violent extremism. As we heard from Milo, hybrid threats can cover everything from disinformation around COVID-19 to election interference and conspiracy theory movements. And the speed, skill and intensity of hybrid threats has increased in recent years. As the digital world and physical worlds become increasingly interconnected, governments in the tech sector are struggling with the question on how to respond to these threats. As Milo explains, there are three main trends when it comes to the hybridization of threats in the context of terrorism and violent extremism. The first is a trend towards more ideologically multifaceted uh, extremism threats. So we're seeing more and more of the extremism threats surfacing challenge and defy traditional counterterrorism categorizations, including Islamist extremism and far-right extremism. The UK government terms this mixed, unclear, unstable ideologies. And there are a number of other grey area threats that range from incel movements through to conspiracy movements like QAnon. So this is one part of the challenge of hybridization that we're wrapping our heads around. The second is a uh, notion of post-organizational threats um, within the extremism domain. So here we mean situations where the influence or direction of specific groups or organizations in extremist activity is more ambiguous or loose. This is not to say that organizations don't matter anymore in extremism and and violence, but rather to say that we're seeing an increasing trend towards sort of non-organizational factors playing a role. And I think this is most clear in the US where data from Pyrus um, from the University of Maryland shows us that the number of radicalized young people with no formal ties to recognized extremist or terrorist groups has tripled in the last 10 years. So I think this is kind of a really important trend within hybridization. And the final one I'll just end with is a trend where violence is emerging from a much broader spectrum. Um, So not within perhaps more predictable groupings, but rather um, emerging from a a wider range of, of sources. So in this context, we see terrorism no longer holding a monopoly on extremist violence. This can instead stem from a range of different hostile organizations with with less clear ideological objectives and and looser movements that feed off conspiracy theories and disinformation. So in in this context, we're talking about a sort of blurry picture that has huge implication for, for policy responses. Offline events play an important part in driving online narratives and can lead to the unlikely overlap of diverse ideologies and online communities around one issue. Both Milo and Bettina agree the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the convergence of terrorist and violent extremist ideologies online. So COVID-19 undoubtedly had a major effect on this process of of hybridization. 
I think the uncertainty and disruption of the pandemic saw an alternative media ecosystem thrive, which brought together very diverse ideological communities, first online and later offline. So we saw this, for example, in the case of Telegram channels with hundreds of thousands of members that were being slowly seeded with accelerationist propaganda, um, as well as in anti-lockdown protests where we saw New Age health practitioners being brought together with ardent white supremacists coming together to call for the hanging of medical professionals. So certainly it had a role to play. And I think, uh, you know, like many phenomena during the pandemic, uh, it was really catalyzed, um, but, but existed beforehand. This was not out of nowhere, these processes that we were seeing. But we've also seen it have a longer lasting effect. So the scaffolding that was really established for this hybridization during COVID-19 uh, has since pivoted to other issues. We've seen these kind of communities now mobilizing around issues as diverse as the Russian invasion of Ukraine through to oppo- opponents of, of responses to climate change. So really, it's had a, a longer lasting impact on these communities. Yeah, I definitely agree uh, what Milo said. I also think, though, when we look at the convergence of extremist ideology, especially during COVID-19, we also have to understand like why these things potentially have happened. So kind of looking at the under- uh, underlying psychological mechanisms which have driven some of these issues. So, I mean, we know that during the pandemic, there was a lot of uncertainty, people felt out of control, and that also has led to increased threat perceptions. We've also seen what Milo said, like, I mean, a lot of people like were spending more time online. And I think it was kind of like that perfect storm. It was kind of like a lot of things coming together. So due to these unmet psychological needs and increased social isolation, we have then seen that people were more drawn to these conspiracy theories online, really to to look for simple answers to these very complex problems which we were facing. I also think that what we've seen within these like kind of extremist and conspiracy forums online was like an anti-establishment sentiment uh, was emerging. So we've seen that, for example, a lot of that has led to decreased trust in different institutions. We've seen increased political polarization. We've seen an erosion of uh, liberal democratic values. So I really think and what we've seen with our research as well, so really people who were traditionally on the left and right kind of want more and more engaging in these like anti-authority and anti-government narratives. And I think that really created that anti-establishment sentiment, which we're seeing now, which has, I think, long-lasting effects for our societies. And I think that's where we really need to kind of do more work on and really see what kind of the impacts of such convergence and how we kind of can work towards building institutional trust up again and things like that. So is there a direct correlation between the exposure to conspiracy theories and radicalization towards more extreme ideologies? Bettina says it's not as simple as that, but through her research, she's identified a number of factors that indicate a person is more likely to engage with extremist content online. So what is really important is looking at the psychological roots, which kind of link different conspiracy theories and violent extremism. And I think it's really important here to identify um, certain vulnerabilities or risk factors, which we know have an impact upon different conspiracy theories and different types of violent extremism. We know that these sort of vulnerability or risk factor make it more likely that people are drawn to these conspiracy narratives. However, we also know that they have led to an increased willingness among individuals to engage in in extremist action. So I really think here it's really important to understand that functional relationship and not just assume a direct relationship, not just looking at the things that the vulnerability factors which make people more susceptible or more vulnerable, but also 
placing like an increased focus on protective factors, which might increase resilience. So I think it's a very challenging question. And we are just trying um, at the moment to unpack the very complex relationships. And we've seen, for example, that a lot of different risk factors can make it more likely that someone who holds conspiracy beliefs also shows an increased willingness to engage in modern extremism. Yeah, so for example, we've seen that people who held lower levels of self-control, people who thought that it's okay to break uh, the rules and norms, so people who held higher levels of legal cynicism. And we also saw, interestingly, that people who held higher levels of self-efficacy, that those people who had also in combination like extreme conspiratorial beliefs, they showed an increased willingness to engage in different types of violent extremist actions. So I really think we need to look at the interactive and moderating factors which really can amplify or diminish the relationship between conspiracy theories and, and different types of extremist violence. Thanks. I just want to build up on, on what Bettina said. I think it's really interesting to look at those those factors and the sort of commonalities that exist um, between violent extremism trends and conspiracy theories. And of course, to, to make that same argument that has been made for a long time in the sort of violent extremism studies field that, of course, beliefs do not necessarily translate into action. And the vast majority of those who are influenced by uh, by extremist worldviews are not necessarily uh, driven towards violent action. But when you look at a number of case studies of areas where we've seen a radicalization to violence that is associated with conspiracy theories or, or disinformation, there are some quite interesting commonalities that emerge in terms of some of the common themes and narratives across those in, in a number of diverse contexts. So one is about apocalyptic narratives that often present themselves. So we see the presentation of an existential threat to an in-group and therefore the need for self-defense against an outgroup. So in, in many ways, sort of based on the, the same construction that extremist ideologies themselves use of, of supremacy, but really framing you know, apocalyptic contexts as, as requiring, requiring violent action. Another, of course, is about anti-Semitism, which is the core of many conspiracy theories and how they're constructed. And this notion of elite control, I think this very often lends itself to a belief that there can be no political solution and therefore that direct action has to be taken in some cases, manifesting in, in violence. And then finally, I think a key thing to mention is the particular role of a perceived threat to innocent victims. At the core of a lot of conspiracy theories that have driven violent action, we've seen the positioning of children as victims in particular. So, so movements like QAnon have, have this construction at its heart and the notion of abuse or grooming that is having a, having a sort of systematic impact on children is really used to dehumanize an outgroup that is supposedly responsible for, for this action and can be used to, to lay the groundwork for violence. So that's, from a sort of narrative perspective, quite an interesting thing to, to, to bear in mind. And maybe I'll just finish by saying that another sort of interesting predictor when it comes to violence within these broader conspiracy movements is also around the specificity of, of targets. So I think when you see sort of more general othering, when, when you're talking about the they that are behind a conspiracy theory, for example, uh, and it refers to a large group of people, that is less associated with specific violent intent than when we're talking about individuals that are responsible. When we're talking about hybrid threats online, it's important to consider where grey area content fits in. This is borderline content which skirts very close to the line of what's acceptable and what violates tech platforms' terms of service. Milo says increasingly disinformation and conspiracy theories are blurring the lines. You know, the way that these threats are manifesting online is such that disinformation, conspiracies and, and hate speech often interplay the networks that drive these and have become increasingly able to 
skirt the boundaries of legality in terms of service of platforms, as well as gaming platform systems to, to reach and engage with wider audiences and to use algorithmic processes to sort of achieve further amplification, which we can go into more detail later, but sort of using those, those systems that are designed to optimize user attention to sort of spread extremist messaging. I think most of the focus to date of efforts to address online extremism um, has really focused on removal of, of violent terrorist content. This has been the primary mechanism of, of moderation and of intervention online. And I think the, the issue around, around gray area borderline content is just looking at violative material fails to address user journeys towards violent extremism online, as well as this broader proliferation of content that might be legal and may not technically transgress platform terms of service, but might nonetheless play a role in leading users to more violent content or inspiring them in other ways to take extremist action. So I think this is where this notion of grey area content has come from and where the conversation is going in terms of some of the broader interventions that might be um, achieved online to tackle some of the these wider networks of, of hybridized harm that we see. Milo adds that there is conflicting evidence around the role of recommendation algorithms and whether they promote more hateful or extreme narratives online. There is an emerging body of research which suggests potentially negative outcomes to both user experience and online discourse, the health of online discourse, as a result of algorithmic ranking systems. Um, and many governments are now thinking and debating how regulation might work around such algorithmic recommender systems to ensure safer and, and more transparent online environments. That we're dealing with relatively limited data here. The, the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, for example, indicated that there were deliberate business decisions that were made to increase user interactions that led to algorithms prioritizing and amplifying negative, toxic and um, hateful content. And Facebook itself has admitted that content that comes closest to, to the red line of, of, of legitimacy receives the highest levels of engagement and has um, previously uh, conducted research that found the majority of users joining extremist groups online uh, do so because of recommendations. So we're seeing, you know, sort of patchy evidence emerge from across a range of different areas. It's very hard to do this kind of work on algorithms systematically. But I think another thing to bear in mind, as well as looking at, at recommender systems, are the other ways that bad actors are using deceptive online behaviors to amplify and target their content. So this might be things like covert coordination, the use of fake accounts, deceptive treatment of automated systems, for example. I think this is really interesting to talk about in this context because these kind of approaches and, and, and techniques have been talked about lots in the context of state actor threats, you know, in, in the context of disinformation, but actually much less when it comes to non-state actors, extremist groups and, and other related movements. So I think these are all part of the sort of systems question here that I think is worth asking alongside the question of, of content itself and what violates and doesn't violate thresholds in terms of service. So are policymakers and the tech sector doing enough to tackle hybrid threats online? Bettina believes there's room for improvement. I think probably we have to do a lot more to tackle that effectively and also to kind of more look what factors actually underlie these groups and where do they diverge. And I think it's not so much that the ideological factors overlap. I think there's a definitely a blurring in those, but I think we definitely see an overlap in like common grievances, common outgroup threats, threat perceptions. So I really think this is where we kind of need to work towards a different concept and really uh, try to improve it that way. 
Milo adds that governments have a long way to go when it comes to understanding these threats and then responding with appropriate policies to tackle them. You know, 20 years ago, when these issues were primarily offline, many of them were very specifically targeted against Islamist extremism challenges and responding to organization-based threats. So in terms of the new emerging challenges that we're facing from this process of hybridization, it's hugely important to think about the implications of this for prevention, for, for policy responses. And in the latest prevent review, there was barely any mention at all of this constellation of threats. Instead, it was really sort of going back to basics on uh, on these issues. So I think it shows that there is a great need to sort of reassess and look at what instruments are required here. I think in particular, there are profound limitations in using prescription-based approaches to dealing with these challenges. It's totally unsuited to a threat where, for example, we see the neo-Nazi Foyer Creek division being prescribed by the government in the UK after it had disbanded and formed into other entities. So it really shows that you know, the more f- fluid threats that we face today are not being dealt with by, by these kind of approaches alone. So they need to be uh, dealt with in a more contextualized way. And then finally, I just say that one of the other challenges is, is the need to move beyond a very myopic counterterrorism focus on these issues. We do not want to securitize and, and, and sort of turn into terrorists these much broader online communities that might be hateful, that might be extremists, but are not necessarily terroristic. So I think it's really important that we, when thinking about policy responses, we, we need to acknowledge the overlap between different siloed policy areas that range from broader societal polarization, as Bettina has talked about, to wider threats from state-backed disinformation, hate speech that exists in a much more mainstreamed way within politics and society, as well as the fact that conspiracy movements continue to proliferate. So this really requires a, a more rounded and holistic, contextualized policy response um, that doesn't just look at this purely through a security lens. When it comes to tech company responses, Milo thinks platforms should be using a range of tools to tackle hybrid threats online. I think the first step is really about better enforcement of existing terms of service. Um, A lot of this kind of material might be in a grey area, but it does contravene existing policies and and community guidelines. So Meta, for example, has introduced policies on violence-inducing conspiracy networks. And, uh, you know, it's been one of the first companies to really sort of step out and look at this broader swathe of harm actors but they've been applied pretty narrowly to date in the cases of movements like QAnon, uh, really only going after more official QAnon content, but not necessarily catching the longer tail of conspiracy movements that use similar references, that use similar aesthetics and, and, and narratives that are able to sort of dodge enforcement basically by, by through rebranding and evasion. I mean, we see evidence come out around the Jan 6th attack, for example, around how companies like Facebook or like Meta have struggled to apply some of the group-based designations that are used, the kind of actor-based approaches to, to dealing with these threats. A lot of companies are grappling with this and, and the thresholding required here. Um, but I think generally it's about having a sort of front-footed approach uh, to enforcement that looks at um, the interaction between offline harm and, and sort of online activity. And then on the broader systems piece, from a company perspective, I mean, there are a number of promising proposals around moving from more engagement-based recommendation systems, um, which might promote this kind of borderline content, through to ones that are instead much more focused on advancing user agency or nudging people in positive directions or, or, or sort of focusing on, on quality uh, recommendations rather than engagement-based ones. So I think there are a lot of interesting movements in this area and a huge field of study emerging around sort of algorithmic amplification, which uh, I think has a lot of potentiality uh, for sector responses to these hybridized threats. 
Bettina adds that a better understanding of why people engage with violent or extremist content online would help tech platforms build resilience against the harmful effects stemming from hybrid threats. I think it's really important that we really try, in terms of preventative approaches, we really try to understand vulnerabilities which make make it more likely that people want to become part of these online extremist movements and why they seek out this online extremist content. And I think it would really help tech companies to better understand the emerging threat landscape if they would also more closely look to the psychological factors which are really driving that. So rather than just looking once someone is in these communities, how that potentially lead to more harmful behavior, which is obviously very important. We also have to understand who are those people? Who are the most vulnerable people to expose themselves to this extremist content or conspiracy content? And who are those when they are exposed to such content? Because not everyone actively seeks out such content. People sometimes just come across such content while they look for other things. And I think we really need to understand who's most vulnerable. And I think it's also really important, rather than just looking at vulnerability factors, we really need to look at resilience factors. So what makes it less likely that people seek out such content or if they are within these online communities, which are the factors which might prevent or buffer against or really uh, dampen the harmful um, effects stemming from hybrid threats and what we've talked about um, earlier, really the blurring of ideological factors. So therefore, I would really recommend that we need a much better uh, knowledge exchange between tech companies and academic research. And not just between tech companies and policymakers or um, policymakers and academics. I think it's really time that tech companies and academics work more closely together, being better equipped to tackle the risk and harms stemming from hybrid threats. And I think it's really important here that we first understand the vulnerabilities which attract people to these forums and then we take it on from there. I think another important thing to, to build on Bettina's point about understanding profiles and, and and sort of the broader pathways of, of individuals into these sort of harmful movements is also to think about interventions on a platform level. There have been experiments with a range of different interventions from counter messaging to engaging with individuals and looking to off-ramp them and, and provide them with support. Most of that has been focused quite narrowly on violent extremism, for example, white supremacist groups or Islamist extremist organizations, whereas these kind of broader based movements provide perhaps more of a challenge for these kind of intervention approaches. And I think when we're designing these and particularly looking to reach vulnerable individuals and to use uh, you know, all the tools we have at our disposal to, to effectively triage those who might be at the greatest risk of, of harm or the greatest vulnerability, we really need to bake in these sorts of um, understandings of, of, of what makes people likely to, to join these kind of movements, what makes people likely to move from uh, from belief to action. So it's really important that we update the toolkit of, of interventions to respond to the threat we face today. Uh, and I think platforms have a key role to play in that, as well as intervention providers and researchers. A huge thank you to Dr. Bettina Rottweiler and Milo Comerford for their input in today's episode. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at techversusterrorism. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And if you enjoy listening, please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us.
This is an OG Podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.